very long time. What is your verdict? Find the defendant guilty. The deadly narcotic. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, you've got to get a hold of yourself. You're listening to Law Talking, an independent podcast brought to you by Greenway Chambers. In this episode, Frank Hicks looks at two recent UK decisions concerning liquidated damages and delay. What is the accrued right to liquidated damages when works are terminated before completion? And can a clause which is invalid as a penalty still be operable as a cap? In our second segment, Frank is joined by Richard Cheney and Adele Carr to discuss two important High Court decisions of recent times. Price v Spore considers the statutory limitations on liability and agreements which may make those provisions unenforceable. Liberty Works Inc v the Commonwealth of Australia concerns the implied right of political communication and the Foreign Influence Transparency Scheme Act 2018, the FITS Act, which seeks to ensure greater transparency with respect to potential foreign influence in the effective functioning and accountability of Australian government institutions. Lastly, our front of house team discusses life in chambers in these strangest of times. Hello, my name is Frank Hicks. Welcome to Law Talking, a Greenway Chambers podcast dealing with issues in law. I'm flying solo today. My usual co-pilot, Ian Roberts, is engaged in a district court hearing that seems to have taken on a life of its own, and he's been unavailable, so it's uh, just me for the introductory part here. But I am joined today by two members of Greenway Chambers, Richard Cheney and Adele Carr, and we're going to be looking at two recent High Court decisions. One, uh, Price and Spore, dealing with Limitations Act and private treaties or agreements which uh, can affect the operation of those limitation periods. And secondly, Liberty Works and the Commonwealth of Australia, dealing with the uh, implied freedoms of communications in the context of the raft of legislation passed recently with respect to transparency and the sponsorship of democratic communications. But before we talk about those particular cases with Richard and Adele, I just wanted to focus on a couple of decisions which had come out of the United Kingdom recently, uh, both of which relating to liquidated damages and those provisions so familiar to us who practice in construction law. The first is a decision called Triple Point Technology and PTT Public Company Limited. Uh, It can be found at medium neutral citation, square brackets 2021 UKSC 29. And it concerned the proper construction of a clause with respect to liquidated damages that provided that there was a liability in respect of the stated rate for liquidated damages of the undelivered work per day of delay from the due date for delivery up to the date that PTT, being the uh, principal or owner, accepts the work. Now, this matter was dealt with firstly at first instance and then went uh, on appeal. And the question that arose on appeal was whether, if in the particular circumstances, uh, PTT was entitled to liquidated damages for work which Triple Point never completed and which was therefore never accepted by PTT. Looking at the express terms of the contract, in particular the relevant provisions concerning that clause, it was held that the there was no liability uh, in respect of liquidated damages uh, 
beyond the precise event for which it expressly provided. And the only event for which Article 5.3, being the relevant liquidated damages clause, was concerned with was the date on which the employer accepted the work. Ergo, it was reasoned that if no acceptance ever occurred, and in this case the contract was terminated before any acceptance took place, there could be no liquidated damages claimed and those accrued rights, uh, if they existed, uh, could not be exercised. Now, this did not uh, find favour with the United Kingdom Supreme Court, who and it was held in the principal judgment of Lady Arden that there was a difficulty about this approach because it was inconsistent with commercial reality and the accepted function of liquidated damages. Uh, Her Honour addressed the various matters concerned with the uh, application of liquidated damages, and Lady Arden said that uh, it, it would be unrealistic to interpret the clause as meaning that if the event that does not occur that is specified in the date for final acceptance of the works in this case, the contractor is free from all liability for liquidated damages and that the employer's accrued right to liquidated damages simply disappears. This was considered to be a return to the rather orthodox view of liquidated damages that uh, whereas they may be calculated from the date for practical completion to the date of practical completion, Um, Where the date of practical completion never arrives because of termination, there is nevertheless an accrued right to claim those damages uh, as they existed as at the date of termination. And the fact that the contractor never achieved completion per se uh, does not mean that it has no liability at all pursuant to the liquidated damages provision. The second decision that I just wanted to mention as part of this introductory uh, segment is the decision of Echo World Ballymore Embassy Gardens Company Limited and Dobler UK Limited. Now, this was a decision of Justice O'Farrell in the England and Wales High Court Technology and Construction Court list. And the interesting part about this decision is that it considered uh, the operation of a liquidated damages clause uh, and whether it was a penalty, firstly, and secondly, whether or not if it was a penalty, it could nonetheless operate as a cap on the liquidated damages uh, or at least the damages that could be recovered as a matter of uh, general principle. Now, Her Honour in this decision considered the various cases associated with penalties, in particular uh, in the UK context, Cavendish Square Holding and MacDessy, and having looked at the various authorities, concluded that the relevant clause was not a penalty because the relevant provision was not so out of proportion with uh, the potential loss and damage that it could be said to operate uh, in a penal way and was therefore void. What Her Honour then went on to consider was an interesting question as to whether or not the clause, which both specified a rate and a cap in respect of liquidated damages, could operate as a cap, even if it were void as a penalty with respect to the rate. Now, Her Honour, interestingly, considered uh, numerous authorities, as well as the relevant textbooks, but those authorities focused on those charter party cases. And uh, she concluded at paragraph 102 of the decision that all the textbooks recognise the line of authority that permits an innocent party to ignore the penalty clause and recover its actual loss, whether more or less than the sum stipulated in the penalty clause. 
And indeed, there was reference to a decision uh, of uh, Wall and Rhetoric Bulgut Lugard, which uh, I've mispronounced horribly as it's a, a German uh, title, um, where it was stated that a penalty clause may be disregarded it is, as it is always disregarded and has become a dead letter, or from another point of view, a brutum fulmen, which translates to meaning a meaningless thunderbolt, which is a rather interesting way to describe a penalty clause. But nonetheless, uh, Her Honour then went on to observe that in Cavendish Square, Lords Neuberger and Sumption, with whom Lord Carnworth agreed, stated that the consequence of a damages provision being held to be a penalty was that the clause would be wholly unenforceable. Now, in this case, uh, however, Her Honour said it does depend upon the particular construction of the clause in issue. And in this particular case, the relevant words were liquidated damages will apply at the rate of £25,000 per week or pro rata for part of a week up to an aggregate maximum of 7% of the final contract sum. And she concluded, although this was obiter, having already found that the clause was not void, but at paragraph 116, she concluded that each clause must be construed in accordance with the established principles of contractual interpretation. And in the judgment of Her Honour, the clause and the trade particulars operate as a limitation of liability provision, even if the liquidated damages were void or a penalty. Her Honour held that having regard to their Lordship's opinions in Cavendish Square, the agreed damages of £25,000 per week would fall away as unenforceable, but the court would strive to give effect to the separate part of the provision containing an express limitation on liability at 7% of the final contract sum. So it's an interesting analysis in respect of these liquidated damages clause, which often incorporate both a daily rate and a cap, as to whether or not if the rate itself and the calculation of it is deemed penal and therefore void, whether nonetheless the balance of the clause, which stipulates a cap, remains enforceable in the context of a claim for general damages. Now, as I say, Her Honour Justice O'Farrell, in this decision of EcoWorld and Dobler, considered that it could operate in that way, although, again, I stress it was obiter as the matter had been decided on the prior point. Um, but it would be an interesting issue of construction here in Australia if one was to consider a similar provision and the effect of it, uh, notwithstanding the difficulties always of establishing uh, uh, the issue of penalty with regards to any clause, but obviously most often with re with respect to uh, liquidated damages clauses. Uh, I believe I gave the medium neutral citation of that decision, if anyone's interested, in EcoWorld and Dobler, but in case I didn't, it was square brackets 2021 in square brackets EWHC 2207 brackets TCC. Well, they're the decisions that I wanted to bring to your attention as part of this opening segment. Now I'll go on with my discussion with Richard Cheney and uh, Adele Carr in respect of the recent High Court decisions of Price and Spore and Liberty Works. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? In this particular segment, I'm talking to Richard Cheney. G'day, Richard. How are you? Good, thanks, Frank. And Adele Carr. Hi, Adele. How's things? Hi, Frank. Good. How are you? 
Very, very well. Very well. Now, in this segment, we're going to look at two recent high court decisions, uh, one concerning the implied political freedom of communication under the Constitution and the other concerning Limitations Acts. Uh, and the first uh, decision, that is of Price and Spore, deals with that. Now, Richard, you've had a chance to have a look at this decision. Um, you're going to tell us about what it was and, and what it all concerned. Sure. Frank, um, Price and Spore relates to the enforceability of contractual clauses that purport to exclude the effects of limitation legislation. It's a decision of five judges of the High Court, uh, the Chief Justice and Justices Gagler, Gordon, Edelman and Stewart, and it was delivered uh, in late June this year. The facts were pretty simple. The, the parties entered into two mortgage contracts over land, securing borrow borrowings of more than $4 million. The borrowers defaulted on the loan repayments. The lender, as mortgagee, sued on the mortgages, seeking to exercise its rights to sell the mortgaged land and recover its debt. And the mortgages contained a clause, Clause 24, that relevantly provided, and I'll quote this because it's important, I think, the, the provisions of all statutes by which the powers, rights and remedies of the mortgagee may be defeated or extinguished shall not apply hereto and are expressly excluded insofar as this can lawfully be done. And that clause was an issue in the proceedings because Section 13 of the Queensland Limitation Act provided for a 12-year um, a limitation period in effect, it read that an action shall not be brought by a person to recover land after the expiration of 12 years from the date on which the right of action accrued. And Section 24 of that Act uh, provided that where the period of limitation uh, had expired, the title of that person to the land shall be extinguished. So in their defence to the mortgagee suit, the borrowers alleged that the action was time-barred and the mortgagee's title to the land was extinguished by operation of Section 24. I see. So <clears throat> the question then I expect you're about to tell us was uh, the extent to which a provision such as Clause 24 of the agreements could expressly exclude the operation of those parts of the Limitation Act and how, how far or insofar as that could lawfully be done. Yeah, exactly. Um, the, the lenders understandably argued that Clause 24 had the effect that any extinguishment of interests affected by the Limitation Act was excluded by the party's agreement. And the borrower's rejoinder to that argument was that Clause 24 was unenforceable as contrary to public policy. The, the borrowers argued, in effect, that as a matter of public policy, parties ought not to be permitted to contract out of a limitation defence, so that Clause 24 was not enforceable to defeat their reliance on the Limitation Act. And it was really this public policy issue that attracted the High Court's interest and in to which the judgment in Eden Price and Spores is directed. I see. So how did the High Court deal with these competing provisions and in particular the public policy arguments that were raised? Well, all five judges of the High Court rejected the borrower's argument and held that the clause, Clause 24, could be enforced by the lenders with the result that they could enforce their security over the land as unpaid lenders. Um, the, the judges referred to an earlier High Court decision in Westfield and AMP Capital Property Nominees in which it was held 
that a person upon whom a statute confers a right may waive or renounce that right unless it would be contrary to the statute to do so. So the judges in Price and Spore reasoned from the fact that the Queensland Limitation Act contained no express prohibition against contracting out of it and that the Act merely gave defendants a right to plead extinguishment when a limitation period has expired rather than effecting an automatic extinguishment upon such expiry, uh, that permitting parties to bargain away such a right was not contrary to the statute. And they, the, the judges arrived at that conclusion by reference to an, early, an earlier High Court decision in Commonwealth and Mewitt, M-E-W-E-T-T, to the effect that in a statute of limitations, a statutory bar does not go to the jurisdiction of the court to entertain the claim, but rather goes to the remedy available. And unless a defence relying on the statute is pleaded, the statutory bar does not arise for the consideration of the court. And I think the simplest rationale that explains the High Court's decision in Price and Spore is this. Given that the Limitation Act established rights the defendant that a defendant could always elect not to exploit, that is by simply not pleading that the action is time-barred, how could it be contrary to the Act to permit a defendant to contract out of those rights? Yes, um, that is certainly uh, <clears throat> one clear view of what the High Court uh, has said, and I think the, the correct one. Now, can I ask, does this decision have uh, implications more generally? Are we likely to see these sorts of exclusion clauses in respective limitation acts uh, appear both in um, instruments dealing with land and in commercial contracts? Yes. Uh, on, on one view, price and spore does not break any new ground, and it should be seen as perhaps another example of the application of the earlier reasoning in Westfield and AMP to the effect that parties may contract out of statutory protections unless to do so would be contrary to the intention of the statute itself. But as the judges in Price and Spore observed, there appears to be no authority in Australia dealing directly with the question whether a contractual provision not to plead a limitations defence entered into for consideration before a cause of action to which it might be pleaded is void against public policy. So the decision, at least in Price and Spores, has put to bed that issue and established um, that it is permissible for parties to so contract. Okay, and beyond the limitation provisions that the court was specifically concerned with in this case, are there any other implications for drafting uh, or litigation? I think so, Frank, but particularly in um, the professional negligence field, um, High Court authority has long recognised that the policy of the law may regard a contract as unenforceable where it operates to defeat or circumvent a statutory purpose or policy according to which statutory rights are conferred in the public interest, notwithstanding that the statute may not contain an express prohibition against contracting out of such rights. And perhaps that, that policy has most frequently been applied in cases in which misleading and deceptive conduct in contravention of the Trade Practices Act or the Australian Consumer Law or its state equivalents is alleged. but And for those of us who practice in the professional negligence field in, in particular, there's long been uncertainty, not yet resolved by the High Court, about whether provisions in, for example, contracts for professional services, which purport to exclude or limit liability for misleading and deceptive conduct, or such as for contra contraventions of Section 18 of the Australian Consumer Law, are void as contrary to public policy. The uncertainty in part stems from inconsistent decisions 
both among the justices of our own Supreme Court and between decisions of our, our judges and those interstate. And perhaps the, those contrasting decisions might be the stuff of another podcast, but it's possible that the recent decision in Price and Spools indicates that the current High Court might want to take a wider look at the so-called exclusion principle or Henjo principle as it was first espoused by Justice Lockhart in the Federal Court. Um, that's a matter of keen interest for um, most building professionals, I think engineers and architects and other professionals and their insurers whose attempts to cap their liability to a fixed amount or a multiple of fees paid um, or indeed to limit the time by which the principal may bring any claim have been struck down uh, under that principle as contrary to public policy. And perhaps Price and Spores foretells um, that the High Court might think it's time for a rethink of the Henjo principle. Uh, thank you very much, Richard. Uh, that was an excellent analysis of the decision in Price and Spore and uh, the prospects of it having wider implications in the future. Another decision that was handed down by the High Court in June was Liberty Works Incorporated and the Commonwealth of Australia. Now, this was a decision which uh, concerned the Foreign Influence Transparency Scheme Act 2018 and its application to a conference uh, which involved Liberty Works Incorporated, uh, which was associated with the American Conservative Union. Uh, there was a conference that was held in which various speakers uh, were present, and the question was whether or not there needed to be registration of uh, the communications under the terms of that Act. Now, Adele, you've had a chance to have a look at this Act. Um, can you give us some initial thoughts, please? Certainly, there were uh, three questions that were put before the High Court. The first one was whether the Foreign Influence Transparency Scheme Act is invalid to the extent it imposes registration obligations. Uh, with respect to communications activities on the ground that infringes the implied freedom of political communication. The second question that the High Court had to look at was in light of the question or the answer to that first question, what relief, if any, should be issued? And then the third being costs, as we, we um, see uh, often in litigation. One of the, the first questions, though, that the High Court had to consider was whether there was a, an implied freedom of uh, political communications. And certainly the High Court was uh, divided with respect to this question. Um, Justice Stewart certainly observed uh, in his judgment whether the uh, text, structure and context of the Constitution, there was an implied um uh, freedom of communication. This is something that Justices Kiefel and Edelman, uh, however, relied on what they referred to as well-settled authority, that the freedom is recognised as necessarily implied because of the great underlying principle of the Constitution is that citizens are to share equally in political power. Notwithstanding this divide, the court then had to consider whether this act burdened the implied freedom and the, the court then considered how to approach that. Chief Justice Kiefel, Justice Kane and Justice Gleeson approached that question by first looking at whether the Act uh, burdened the implied freedom, then secondly turning to the legitimate purpose of the Act, and then third, considering 
whether the proportionality and it was this proportionality that was also considered by uh, Justice Stewart um, and also concurred by Justice Edelman where the court considered if the law was suitable, necessary and adequate to give to the legitimate purpose. Uh, it was, however, Justices Gagler and Gordon which took a different view uh, with respect to this approach. And it was uh, Justice Gordon which set out in his judgment that to approach this question, the first thing that needs to be considered is whether the impugned provisions effectively burden the freedom of political communication. Two, if the purpose of the Act is legitimate, so again, very similar to the plurality, but the third is where his honour diversion was similar to Justice Gagler, uh, where their honours considered the question of not proportionality, but whether the impugned provisions reasonably appropriate and adapted to advance that legitimate purpose in a manner consistent with the maintenance of the constitutionally prescribed system of government. I think uh, going back to the question of the operation of the legislation, it was interesting that there were a series of agreed facts that were set out in the, in the early part of the judgment. Um, and one of the agreed facts was that there was a distinction between foreign interference and foreign influence, um, the former being uh, something to which the legislation could be directed. And it was also agreed that foreign influence will amount to foreign interference if it is undertaken using covert, deceptive corrupting or threatening means to damage or destabilise the government or political processes of a country. And that the parties also agree that transparency of foreign influence can contribute to the effective functioning and accountability of Australian government institutions and help protect their integrity by reducing the risk that foreign influence will result in foreign interests prevailing over domestic interests by ensuring that the Australian public can assess the nature level and extent of foreign influence in respect of particular decisions or processes accurately. Now, my reading of the decisions were that the uh, plurality, uh, Justices Kiefel, Keane and Gleeson, held that these provisions were valid, as did Justice Edelman and Stewart in terms, but that Justices Gagler and Gordon were concerned in particular with a distinction that appeared with respect to what information could be required to be provided and what information could actually be used. And looking at paragraphs 114 and following of Justice Gagler's decision, he was concerned that the architecture of the scheme not only required the provision of information that would then be made available through a public record in a very specific and clear way, particularly in accordance with the terms or objects, I should say, as were agreed facts with respect to foreign influence and transparency. But that in addition, as with as is often the case with legislation like this, there were uh, cognate or other provisions which allowed the discretionary collection and use of information, not for the public register, that is to say, to establish transparency, but for other reasons, in particular, Section 41, which permitted uh, the secretary, who was uh, allowed a discretion to collect information, to share that information with numerous Commonwealth, state and territory agencies and authorities 
um, again, at the Secretary's discretion. Now, ultimately, Justice Gagler um, held that there was a clear contrast between the precisely defined obligation to publish a subset of the information consistent with those objects of transparency and the avoidance of political interference and the discretions to collect information and to share it with other agencies. And he ultimately concluded in a what he himself described as a blunt uh, matter, the scheme of registration is simply not fit for purpose. The registration narrowly tailored to improve transparency of political communication undertaken on behalf of foreign principals with public or sections of the public in a manner that minimally impaired freedom of political communication would have no place for a secret register at all. And indeed, Justice Gordon similarly held that the uh, gap between the information disclosed, uh, which is required for a publicly available register, and the information which might have to be disclosed but kept on a non-public register uh, and shared with state, commonwealth and territory agencies at the discretion of the Secretary simply cannot be explained. And it was for that particular reason, the fact that the legislation went beyond the object of transparency and went into the realm of secret registers being shared at uh, unconfined or with unconfined discretion by the Secretary, that each of Justice Gagler and Justice Gordon held that the scheme was invalid. Uh, certainly, in my view, at least, for what it's worth, I think their analyses of the legislation and what it actually projected make for very fascinating reading. Adele, do you agree? Oh, certainly. There was a uh, an article in the Sydney Morning Herald a, a couple of weeks ago with respect to this act, and uh, the Sydney Morning Herald did interview Mr Turnbull about the introduction of this legislation. And although uh, many comments were made about the effect of this act uh, and certainly its future. One thing that Mr Turnbull did make mention was with respect to this registration, uh, having had to uh, register for a couple of uh, events uh, that was mentioned in this article was that the form was actually, he referred to it as being clunky. (laughs) Well, that's certainly one way to describe it. As I say, Justice Gagler had a rather different description, which was not fit for purpose. So that that presents a rather different... uh, uh, description, as I say. Almost right. one where, where we have an academic uh, versus a practical uh, application. Well, indeed, indeed. Um, well, look, thank you very much for that, Adele. Uh, that's very interesting. And Richard, uh, I trust that you're still with us. I'd like to thank you again for your um, excellent analysis of Price and Spore. Pleasure, Frank. And um, onwards and upwards to the next segment. Thank you very much, Richard. Thanks, Adele. Good morning, Greenway Chambers. Good morning, Greenway Chambers. Good morning, Greenway Chambers. Good afternoon, Greenway Chambers. Good morning, Greenway Chambers. I'm Shani McPhee, Senior Clerk of Marketing Communications, and today we are coming to you with a very special final segment for this episode, and I am joined by my colleagues... Uh, Matthew Hudson, I'm the Senior Clerk of Operations at Greenway Chambers. I'm Anna Kuntz, I'm one of our junior clerks. I'm Edward Goodman, another one of our junior clerks at Greenway Chambers. 
And I'm Rita Camrudo, one of our other junior clerks. And this is our first appearance on the Law Talking podcast, something we are very excited about. So we thought that we would use this opportunity today to introduce ourselves so you can all get to know us a little bit. Um, you may recognize me from the intro and outro of all our episodes, but uh, Matthew, I'll start with you. As the only member on the team who has ever worked in a chambers other than Greenway, what is the one thing that you think is particularly unique to your experience working at Greenway? I think the difference that Greenway has from my previous chambers experience is that it has been a very forward-thinking and progressive set of chambers. Mm. Uh, I've found that the way it's structured and the model of chambers is kind of adapted it's thinking 10 steps ahead rather than chasing its tail for new ideas and just trying to keep up with the pace that is the modern world these days. Mm. The diversity of Greenway was certainly one of the things that drew me to it initially. And I've got to say something I didn't fully appreciate until the interview process and even until a few weeks in. And because I'd never worked at a different chambers, I didn't quite realise how abnormal it was perhaps to have so many female barristers and so many young barristers in the chambers and for that to just be a given. So that was certainly something that I wasn't expecting but that I was very pleased to find. Anna, just because you're part of the conversation, last year you left us for a short period of time to participate in a summer clerkship. What do you think working in chambers has done the best to prepare you for working in a law firm? Uh, There were definitely a few things. The one that comes to mind most practically was physically having seen what a brief to counsel looked like, knowing what separated the good ones from the not so good ones, knowing what some of our different barristers liked and having also seen the electronic ones. I think it just made it a lot easier when that was a task that I had to complete myself, that I had a little bit of understanding of not only what it looked like, but how people preferred to receive it. But as well as that, it was the sort of classic Mm -hmm. phone manner, um, professional calling, especially when calling to get dates and times for barristers. One of my favourite days was when I had to call back to Greenway with my most professional voice and ask to speak to Matthew (laughs) Hudson to sort out some dates. Um, And in in, in a very open plan office where I had to keep the facade that I wasn't talking to an old friend. So, yeah, that was definitely another one of the things that it um, prepared me for. I remember that call when he answered it and he realised it was you. He went, oh, Anna, hey. (laughs) And then obviously I could only hear one half of the conversation and it seemed very confusing until the question of if you're in a crowded space and you have to maintain your professionalism, just say yes. (laughs) Exactly. Well, I wasn't quite sure whether to just say (laughs) Yeah. say my first name or say my full name. I wasn't sure how recognisable my phone voice was going to be. So I went with the full name and firm for total clarity. Um, and I think that might have been where some of the confusion stems from. <laughs> Matt, how was it to be on the receiving end of that phone call? It was very strange because I was prepared to have a conversation and I got nothing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was there to do my job. It must have been a busy day. Ed and Rita I have a question for both of you Um, 
you each of you joined us this year and unfortunately you were only with us for I think two weeks before we went into lockdown but um what was one thing that really surprised you about the chamber's environment the team the, the members anything yeah I think I had a few um assumptions that were definitely um kind of broken early on I think the first one was that I never kind of thought about how informal the barristers would be um, and, you know, how kind of friendly and conversational they were really surprised me. Overall, the one thing that really shocked me the most was how much running I did, like around the around the city, around chambers. Um, and just getting my steps up was always, you know, a pleasant surprise. <laughs> yeah, you'll be the fittest you've ever been working as a junior. <laughs> and Rita? I think something that I think I definitely assumed that maybe Chambers wouldn't be as technologically advanced as it was. So I know that was a very, very pleasant surprise to just go in and see all this. You know, we have a server rack in a, in one of our rooms. It's amazing. For context, Rita has a very technical background with uh, studying technology at university. So these things stand out to her. <laughs> It was, I think I think it was a very very pleasant surprise to get to see all our all our, all the different tech and all the, all the conference rooms and then the boardroom. Another thing that I think really surprised me was how um, all the places that we routinely visit, the people at those places remember you. That's actually something that I had never considered because obviously we have that with people who we see regularly coming in to make deliveries, but it never occurred to me that you guys would be experiencing it from the other side as the person making the delivery all the time Mm. it's nice though definitely um we've all obviously been working from home for a little while now what do you miss the most about being in chambers well I'd have to say physically being with the team given how close we have been uh since we've all started I think that's probably one of the biggest things that I'd have to say that I've missed and obviously the barristers as well Um, You know, our usual Friday lunches and Friday drinks that we'd have in chambers. Um, You know, AVL is great, at least it lets us see each other, but just doesn't have the same feel as in person. So I think that's probably one of the biggest things that I'd miss in chambers. Mm. Yeah, I agree. It's hard to not have that connection. Yeah, and there's, mm. but there is something about going through lockdown as a team and kind of like the whole forged in fire, like mm. the fact that we're able to communicate and work together throughout the day without any distractions, like I feel like it just brings us closer together. Mm. I think so, and I look forward to our FaceTime calls. Yeah. Regular visits from Rita's dog and Matt's kids. <laughs> Honorary <laughs> team members. <laughs> yeah. Ed? I think the one thing that I really miss the most was just like the banter that we would have in front of house and just like all of those funny conversations and hearing what everybody's been up to, which we still have like over the phone. Um, And other than that, I really do just miss running around the city. Now that we know what we miss the most about being in chambers, um, as you all know, I have been loving sitting outside and working in the sunshine and the warmth. But um, for the rest of you, is there anything you're going to miss from working from home or that you wish you could take with you when you go back to Chambers? Oh, definitely. I think my little assistant junior, my dog, Cannoli. We love I think Cannoli. he's something I'll miss. <laughs> he's something I'll definitely miss. He's very helpful during the day, just sleeps. 
um, for probably greater than 10 hours a day. Um, he's definitely something I'd bring back with me if I could. I think I'm going to miss wearing tracksuit pants and a hoodie to work um, sitting at my desk. And I'm gonna really yeah, hate... Aren't we all, Ed? <laughs> I'm going to really hate putting a suit back on and having to come to work in a suit. Um, but I'll happily do that if it means I get to come back to Chambers in person. Maybe we'll try and find you a pair of tailored tracksuit pants. Mm. That's that's the dream. You have the illusion of formality. <laughs> the illusion. <laughs> All right. Well, um, I hope that I hope that everybody listening has gotten to know front of house at Greenway Chambers just a little bit better. Um, as you can probably tell, we love a little bit of banter. We love to have a laugh. Where we really enjoy our job. And we really hope that you've gotten gotten to know us a little bit and enjoyed yourself along the way. And hopefully you find us as funny as we find us. <laughs> <laughs> so Matt, Anna, Ed, Rita, thank you for joining me on this Saturday afternoon. And hopefully we will be in your ears again sometime soon. Bye. 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 Thank you. you. Thank you for listening to Law Talking. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individual and are not representative of Greenway Chambers. Subscribe in Apple Podcasts and if you enjoyed this episode, why not leave us a review? You can also listen to Law Talking on Spotify, your favourite podcast app or our website. Be sure to visit greenway.com.au to access the show notes and for more information on today's speakers.